Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! So, in the Gospel of John, the series that we're in right now, we've been in now for a couple months, is I Met Jesus Today. Because you see people regularly meeting Jesus in the Gospel of John, and you hear the stories of change, and you hear the stories sometimes of not wanting to change and fighting against what God is doing. And so, this, I think, is really, really instructive for us as people that are either followers of Jesus or those that are exploring Jesus and don't know him yet as Savior. I think it's good because you see both happening. You see both kinds of people having to wrestle with the words of Jesus. And our goal has been to say, okay, so if Jesus presents himself as X, Y, or Z in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in here in John in particular, are we willing to listen to that? Are we willing to let that change us in any way? Like we just got done singing, let my Jesus change your life. A lot of us can have a lot of backwards views about, uh, about Christianity, about Jesus, about what he offers, what he doesn't offer us. And so one of the big theme questions for this series, uh, for us, is to ask the question, like, are we meeting Jesus as he is, or are we following a Jesus that maybe we've made up, right? And hear me on that. Are you following Jesus as he said he is, or have you made a version of Jesus up that's maybe actually very damaging for you? It's built off of hurt and pain and past experiences, or maybe one that's like really, really easy, right? Have you built a Jesus that's really easy to follow because he looks a lot like you, right? And he likes, he likes your likes, and he wants to do the things that you want to do, and he's okay with the sin that you like, right? Those are the kind of things we want to avoid, and that's why it's so important to really meet Jesus as he says he is. So the big question again for this series, because I want to do a bit of a recap. We've been in this series now for a couple months, and I know we've covered a lot of ground. And I know that we can't always make every Sunday. And I know that when you're sitting here, sometimes you may be thinking about lunch or chores that you need to do or work that's coming up tomorrow or a million things, right? There's a lot that goes through our minds and in our hearts when we come to church, and I get that. But I want you to be able to hear this recap so you can see where we've come from in the Gospel of John so that you can better understand who Jesus is, so that he can do some more work in your life. Because if we meet Jesus as he is, honestly, he will change your life. That's why we sing songs like we do. And it'll affect every area of your life, your relationships, like I said earlier, your fears, your anxieties, your spending habits, a million things. And it's about freedom. So, to recap, We'll take a little bit of time. This is the big question for this series. What is it truly like to encounter Jesus Christ as he is, not as we made him to be? All right. Now, in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, you have this epic introduction of Jesus. Right? I mean, it's a huge introduction. We covered this a couple months ago. But John starts right out with these kind of words here in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a pretty epic introduction. So the Word, again, as a reminder, that the Greek word, word, is logos. Logos means it's the, the full representation of a person's mind. 
So Jesus Christ is a full representation of the mind of God, is a full expression of who God is. Not only that, but he was with God, and this word Jesus was God. So he's connecting verse 1 immediately to Genesis 1. So, I mean, talk about a loftier goal is to compare Jesus immediately to the connection with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth. John didn't do this on accident. He's trying to help us understand Jesus is that creator God. Right off the bat, Jesus is put in this light here. And he goes on in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. Again, concrete. All things were created through him. More concrete. And then he keeps going. He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this same creator God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is who Jesus Christ is. This is an epic introduction. And this is a very lofty introduction to give somebody in the first 14 verses of what you're writing. And then he goes into verse 17 and 18. And he says, for the law was given through Moses... And then something different. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this is difficult for us to walk the line on. To say, I'm going to walk the line on truth, but I want to do it graciously. That's not always easy, particularly in the culture where we live. Because if you don't agree with me now, today, you what? You hate me, right? You're my enemy. And it's like, no, no, we can just disagree. Sometimes very passionately, sometimes very sharply. But it doesn't mean I think you're my enemy. And so Jesus gave us this model of walking grace and truth. And they came through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our model. And then in verse 18, he closes out his introduction by saying, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Why? Well, because he is God. He is the Logos. He is the mind of God expressed fully and a human being. That's who Jesus is. Epic introduction. Epic introduction. So, that's who Jesus is. And remember, John is writing about what Jesus did, what Jesus said, because they point to who he is. So, if that's who he is, where did he get that from? Where did he get these epic ideas from? He got them from Jesus Christ himself. And he, John presents these seven I am statements as proof that this is who Jesus is. This is where he gets these ideas from. So, as a quick recap on what these I am statements are. So, get a little nerdy with me here. I am, in Greek, is ego eimi. Now, the reason this is different in the Gospel of John, this, the reason we need to slow down for just a half a second and say, okay, what's actually happening here, is in Greek, grammatically speaking, you could just say, eimi, whatever, and that would be I am. So, the fact that it's recorded that Jesus said, ego eimi, essentially, if you translate that out and look what that means, go to the next slide, that essentially means I, yes, I am. So that is a statement of being, of his very essence. This is a huge statement that's recorded as Jesus saying, I, yes, I am. And so then it's like, okay, well, what, what does that matter? So what? So he, he kind of repeats himself a lot. What, big deal. Because if you go to the Old Testament, if you go to Exodus chapter 3, the great I am, or I am, is the name of Yahweh God as revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. Well, who should I say sent me? Well, tell him, I am that I am sent you. I am that I am. Yes, the great I am. That's a statement of self-existence. I am. I just am. That's who I am, right? I don't need anything. I'm not connected to anything. I just am. And so when in the Old Testament you see that, God's name is Yahweh. 
right? In Hebrew, that's Yohei-Vav-Hei, the Tetragrammaton, big fancy name for that. It's the name of God, and it means I am. So in Greek, when Jesus is saying things like ego and me, he's literally claiming the name of God. That is exactly what's happening, and that's why these statements are really, really important, because he's claiming to be God. So what are some of these statements? Well, we covered some of these things. Uh, the first is, I am the bread of life. So not only I am, but a statement uh, that it has theological meaning. We covered all these statements over the last couple months. Then he says, I am the light of the world. And he keeps going. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. This one was a big deal because Psalm 23, the Lord, what? Is my shepherd, right? In Hebrew, Yahweh is my shepherd. So for Jesus to show up and say, I'm Yahweh and I'm the good shepherd. Like that's a big deal. And the Jews at the time understood what he was saying. And that's why they were so intent on killing him because he kept saying things like this, right? And he keeps going. I'm the resurrection and the life. By resurrecting Lazarus, that was the proof. He says this statement and then he goes and resurrects Lazarus as proof to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And this right here, I am the way the truth, and the life. What comes after this? No one comes to the Father but through me. So here's a line in the sand that's hard for us today, especially in our super spiritual world. Jesus Christ says himself that he is the way to the Father and there's no other way to heaven except through him. If you believe that Jesus is one among many, you don't believe in Jesus Christ of Scripture. You don't. This is why we need to meet Jesus where he says he is, not where we want him to be. And this is a hard, difficult line for our culture because it's like, oh, that's so exclusionary and narrow-minded and you think you're better than everybody else. I don't. I think I'm a dirty sinner that was saved by grace. And I'm grateful that Jesus Christ revealed the way to me, right? But if you just believe that Jesus Christ is one of many, you do not believe in the real Jesus Christ. Like, I just want to make that clear, not in a butthead way, but because that's what Jesus Christ says. So you can't put him equal with other religious systems because he says he's not himself. He says he's not. And then the last one, what we will get to eventually, he says, I am the true vine. If I, in fact, in the way to the father, basically, if you want to be connected to me, that's the way you want to live. If you want to be connected to me, you've chosen the right path because I am the vine. And if you want to live a fruitful, productive, free life, be connected to me. Don't be connected to other stuff, sin and other ways of living. Jesus is saying, I really am God, and I want you to be connected to me. So those are the I am statements. Those are pretty big. But it's one thing to say something. Like, who cares? I could stand up here all day and say, I'm God. And hopefully you guys would run me out of here. But I could say it, right? I could say that. I could make that claim. But there's got to be some proof. And that's where their seven signs come in. And that was the second section of the Gospel of John. And that's called the Book of Signs, chapters 2 through 12. And here is not just what, like this introduction in chapter 1. It's not just the sayings of Jesus, but it's like, okay, what did he actually do that convinced John that he was, in fact, God? And John says he did a bunch of other stuff, but these I give you because I want you to know that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and he offers eternal life. So that's what John is doing in this gospel. And those were, which we've already covered, first one, changing the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Healing the official son was number two. Number three, healing the paralyzed man, healing the blind man, and then feeding the 5,000. And then just a little bit later in chapter six, he's going to walk on water. And then the last one, as we already said, raising Lazarus from the dead, 
that was proof that he is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. So these are the kind of things that John saw, and he puts forward as evidence to say, yeah, this is actually who Jesus is. This is the one that we follow. This is the Son of God, the way to eternal life. So last Sunday, we shifted away from the, the book of signs, and we started looking at some people. All through this series, we've been watching videos of people from this church body share their story of how they met Jesus. We've had a bunch of baptisms lately, and so we've been hearing people about their story when they met Jesus and giving their lives to Christ. So that's an awesome celebration. And then uh, we are also mixing in stories from Scripture. So the first one last Sunday was Nicodemus, and then we looked at the woman in the well. Totally different opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Nicodemus, like just top of society, woman at the well, a total outcast. Nicodemus comes searching for Jesus, asks him some questions. He's curious. And Jesus goes and searches the woman at the well out. He sets up an opportunity. This woman's going to have to bump into him. And he changed both of their lives. So meeting Jesus Christ and listening to him changed everything for these two. Nicodemus especially, he had to walk away from everything. His whole entire way of life had to be walked away from to follow Jesus. Like it's a big deal that he actually did that in John chapter 19. So those are some of the people that we've met. And today, I want to meet some other people. I want to meet, again, I want to meet some of these um, spiritually lost religious people. I want to meet some hopeless people because that's who Jesus was about. That's who Jesus is for, pressing into these kinds of people with the hope, with truth. That's what he is about. So we're going to look today at the Pharisees. We'll look at some scribes. And we're going to look at this woman caught in adultery. Like, we're going to look at a pretty, pretty serious scene today. And today is a heavier day. Today is not necessarily uh, all laughs and jokes because today Jesus is having a very serious, hard, tough conversation with these people, with these religious leaders. So to go back to our initial question, where are you with Jesus, right? Those of you that are religious in the room, uh, are you following like Jesus really? Or are you following a version you've made up? Or are you following and are you comfortable with the fact that you're a Christian or you're a religious person? You know, I'm not really religious, but I'm very spiritual. You know, that's another big thing today. But the question for us is like, are we really following Jesus? That's what the Gospel of John is trying to push us into. Like, are you, do you really know Jesus? And that's what we're going we're gonna to see today. And those of you that don't know Jesus yet, do you realize, do you, do you, are you able to appreciate what Jesus actually did? Because the reality that, that I, I think about often is if, Jesus just dies, but doesn't actually come back. Christianity dies with him. You know, like those guys had been duped for three years. If Jesus doesn't actually come back, if the craziness of the resurrection doesn't actually happen, we don't have 20,000 or 2022 AD, right? There's no AD. There's no BC. It's just, I don't even know what calendar we're using at this point. You know, like what's going on, right? But there is, there, there isn't that. It all dies with Jesus. If he just dies. So something radical had to happen, and that's, that's what we wrestle with, with Jesus. The reality of his resurrection, the reality of his words, of who he actually is. And so again, that's what we're going to step into today with these people. So I want to explore, again, those, just to clarify, I want to hopefully clarify a couple things, explore a couple things. What are some signposts in your life that might point to the fact that you're becoming a spiritually lost religious person? Right? Because sometimes we can think we know Jesus and we don't. That's Matthew 25, 24, 25, right? He gets into that in the Olivet Discourse. Or we do follow Jesus, we do know Jesus, but we're really, really comfortable and we're really settled into our religion. And we put a lot of trust and a lot of faith just in the fact that we are a Christian. 
but we don't really know Jesus. That's, that's a big theme for today and what we read here. And then the second one is, I want to also clarify, how do we approach our sin? Because Jesus is really serious about it. Jesus understands that your sin is going to destroy you if you let it keep growing in your life. Like, it's going to eat you up, and you're going to start to see spiritual and relational and mental and physical death in your life if you just keep feeding sin. And that's how Jesus looks at it. Not in a, con- like a condemnation kind of way, but as a way like, I want you to have freedom from these things. That's the New Testament, man. I want you to have freedom from these things, not to live as a slave. So those are the, the, the things I would like to clarify, talk about um, as we get going this morning. So a couple of the groups that we're going to meet. I'm going to introduce you just in case you don't know them. First up is the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are a a group of guys that really have a bad light cast on them in the New Testament for many good reasons. But they didn't do everything wrong. Uh, One thing they got really right is they they were the the common man's uh, religious leader. They they seem to be like uh, religious leaders of of, of the regular, everyday people, right? That's what they had a reputation for. Two, they seem to really genuinely want to follow God. Like, they seem to be really all in on wanting to follow God. They just had some weird things that they were doing kind of surrounding that. Uh, Some of them would follow Jesus, like Nicodemus that we met last week. Also, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. So some of these people put the pieces together and said, okay, this guy is our Messiah, right? So you have those. Then, the things that they got wrong. And this is where I want us to hit pause really quickly. If you say you're a follower of Christ, if you say you're a Christian, if you're going to church, if you're serving, if you're doing all these good things, they put their traditions and their religion really on par and sometimes, if not above, the Old Testament law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law, they put their traditions that were passed down really on par and sometimes above what God said. And that's what Jesus was always getting into it with them about. They were always putting their religion and their traditions right there with God. And Jesus is like, look, you keep doing this. And you've created these complex systems that are making it impossible for people to follow me. And then you're sometimes making it so complex, you're making loopholes so that people don't have to follow me. You can break the fifth commandment, right, under your little system, which is you don't have to obey your parents anymore. You don't have to honor your parents anymore. You don't need to do that stuff because of the complex systems that the Pharisees had set up. So Jesus is constantly getting into it with about that kind of stuff. They were missing the point of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And in a conversation out of another gospel, in Mark 7, we see this. So in these three verses, look at this little back and forth here between the Pharisees and Jesus. They say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition, notice the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? It goes on. You have let, Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. He keeps getting into this with them. And then lastly, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So it's these traditions that they have handed down. And they're following these like their scripture. So here's the point I want us to think about right here. So focusing on religious tradition rituals made them feel morally superior and safe from the effects of their own sin. That's a really easy thing to do. And this is the kind of stuff that the Christian church in America, this is the kind of stuff that Kyle Sargent has to stop doing. Thinking that I'm so good with God because I do X, Y, and Z that my sins aren't as bad as other people's sins. Or that my issues aren't as bad as other people. Like a really a humble follower of Christ is going to realize that their issues are just as bad as everybody else's sin. 
right? And they're going to be honest about that as they approach somebody else's sin. So, but they had gotten caught up in this feeling of superiority and feeling of protection from the effects of their own sin. And again, Jesus gets after him about this. Some of the things that he would call them are really, really harsh. Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind. He calls them children of hell, a brood of vipers. And in relation to their hypocrisy and their fake holiness, Jesus would say this. He says they're whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. So here's my hard question for you this morning. Do you look really good on the outside and yet you are a hypocritical sinner on the inside? You look nothing like Jesus in your personal life. Because here's my question. For you personally in your life, do you really want the freedom that Christ offers? Secondarily, do you want the next generation to be able to look to the church and say, you know what, the church, man, there's something different about believers. There's something different about Christians. Life is insane right now in the world, and yet they, have this, they seem to have this joy and this peace. They're not out there spewing venom all over everybody all the time, every chance they get. I see a consistency. When I go to that church, man, those people love Jesus and they're kind together. And you know what? I work with a bunch of them or I go to school with some of them or I see them at the grocery store or I coach with them because my kids play the same sports as theirs. And man, they're the same no matter where they go. These people are followers of Jesus. They are not whitewashed tombs full of death on the inside. That is like the worst condemnation ever of somebody that says they follow God. And it's what drove Jesus insane when he talked with these kinds of people because this is who they were. And so this is, the, this is like the heart check for us. Is that what we are like? The world is watching. They need hope. They need light. Anxiety and depression are skyrocketing. Mental health is a total mess. Will we lean into each other? Or will we all come to church like we've all probably been raised to think that when we come to church, we need to be perfect, that we need to be okay, that we need to be all set when we walk into a church? Because for a long time, that's been the vibe. My entire Christian life, since the sophomore in high school, that's the vibe I always got. When you go to church, that's not a place where you go to deal with your stuff. That's not a place where you go to be authentic and real and be vulnerable. No, you need to be good. Like, you need to get yourself cleaned up. You need to wear the right clothes. You need to act right. And so we got people coming into churches every Sunday just broken by sin, feeling like they can't do anything about it, and they can't tell anybody about it. That's not what church is supposed to be like. Jesus said it should look a lot like a hospital, right? That's what Jesus said. And if you follow Jesus, man, let's model that. Let's not be this. That's not good. So here's a couple questions. Are you snug in your traditions and your religion? I'm not really concerned anymore with what God actually says. And this last one, are you a hypocrite? It's a good one. Self-examination here. I'm not trying to shame anybody, but are you? Because you're supposed to be a source of hope in life. But are you instead a whitewashed tomb full of death? This is a question that God was drilling me with this week as I thought about my own sin. I thought about my own pride. I thought about just where I am, how I look at other people that are struggling. And God was like, are you like that? Is that you, Kyle? And I had to wrestle with this all week. It's not easy preaching. I got to think about this stuff all week long, right? Man. But I, I want to come honest. I want to come humble and let you know this. Like these things aren't easy for me either. But I'm trying. I'm following Jesus, right? Like, this is the stuff I want to do, and it's not easy. But I don't want to be that. Amen? All right.
So scribes, who are these guys? They're experts in the law, often challenging Jesus when it came to matters of purity and like matters of like surrounding the law. Like that was like, those are the guys. The scribes are the guys that are always challenging Jesus. All right? So, and all of these guys, they stood to lose a lot. Religious leaders, if Jesus comes and he says, okay, that system is gone, there's a new covenant, that means everything they know is done, right? They, they don't have jobs anymore. They don't have, like, anything anymore is how they're going to feel. So they have a lot to lose if Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So you just got to remember that tension that's always there for these guys as well. All right, so now we have a little history lesson, a little background. I want to jump to John chapter 8 and look at these guys and their interaction with Jesus and some of the things that they're doing. So John chapter 8, verse 2. So at dawn, he went to the temple, Jesus did. He went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. So he sits down, which is different than what we do today normally, but he sits down because in that culture, that was a sign of authority. So Jesus was a recognized authority because of the position that he took with a bunch of people that came to hear him teach. Verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees, they, so these two groups, they brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Right there in the center. So she's guilty. She sinned, and there's consequences that go with that. And you'll see Jesus doesn't try to minimize that. He doesn't say she didn't. He doesn't say this is unfair later on. So she's caught in the act of adultery. And the legal experts bring her to the center of this mob, this angry mob, thirsty for her blood, and there stands Jesus. And this is an important component of this story, of what's happening, because mob mentality is a dangerous thing, right? I don't know if you're paying attention, but just recently, after a soccer game, like 120-some people were killed in light of a soccer game. Mob mentality is a very scary thing. And here this woman, this poor woman, who's already a wreck, and she's drugged in front of these people, and there stands Jesus. Not knowing what Jesus is going to do, not knowing where Jesus lands on this even, but here she's brought before Jesus. In verse 4, teacher is a setup, not as a compliment. This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. And then the question, of course, so what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Of course, the most obvious question in this little scene is where's the man? And she's caught in the act of adultery. Where is the dude? Takes two to tango. Right? Where is he? So you see the hypocrisy. You see the sin. You see what they're trying to do here. They're not really worried about what's right and wrong here. What they want to do is create a false dichotomy they think they, they, think they can get Jesus into. They think they can catch him. Why? Because if he chooses justice, they can say, oh, look, he's embracing mob mentality. He's embracing mob justice. The Romans are going to get him. That's a crime. The Romans are going to get him. And if he, if he embraces grace... Now, this teacher, now he's siding with what? Rejecting the law. He's rejecting the law of Moses. So they think they have him caught. Airtight case. We got Jesus, right? That's where they think they have Jesus. And they're like, oh, all arrogant and haughty. And then right in the middle of all this, don't lose track of this, these self-righteous men are dragging this woman as a pawn in this deadly game that they're playing to try to get Jesus. Like that's That's... The, like the life and death part of this story is that they're using this woman as a pawn in their little game. So here's the awkward thing that happens in light of their question. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. So here you have this mob mentality 
craziness on the verge of breaking out, and Jesus is just like, oh, that's a good question. And then he kneels down and starts doodling in the ground. Now, that word writing there is a Greek word, uh, Greek root word, grapho. And so that means you can write, yes. It means you can carve, but it also means you can draw. So the question is, what was Jesus writing, carving, or drawing in the dirt or in the sand? So I spent way more time than I should have this week researching this little question because this is how Pastor Kyle does things. I get sidetracked on rabbit trips. But it was really interesting and kind of helpful. So a couple of, or a few of the ideas that were put forward I, I wanted to be able to present to you. One is that he was doing nothing at all. Right? And I've heard this one before, that he just kneels down and he's just doodling on the ground because they want this answer. What are you going to say, Jesus? And he's just like, tension rising, getting awkward. Did he not hear us? Why is he drawing? Right? So the tension is building. Or secondarily, I've heard this before too, he's just writing their sins down in light of the question he's about to ask them, right? So he's writing their sins down. Third, though, I thought this one was the most interesting. I've never heard this one before, so I wanted to share this. It's out of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. And it's real, I, I don't know why I'd never heard this, but uh, I wanted to share this today. So it says, 600 years before Jesus, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you, will be put to shame. And this interesting second part, all who turn away from me, like the Pharisees, will be written in the dirt. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. And what did we just look at last week? Jesus and the woman at the well calling himself the living water. It's an interesting idea, um, but I have no idea. But it's fun to speculate, right? I have zero idea what he was actually writing. But he does that, and it doesn't have the desired effect. Because, he says, in verse 7, John does, So they persisted in questioning Jesus. So he stands back up. Now imagine the hush that goes with that. And he says to them, totally unexpected, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stoops back down again and continues riding in the ground. So again, totally unexpected response. Meanwhile, remember, here's this woman still standing here like, okay, that's not what I was expecting, Jesus. I don't want people throwing rocks at me, right? And so she's not knowing what's going on. And then you have Jesus riding in the dirt. Like, what is he, again, what is he writing? So the Old Testament law so said that if you want to uh, bring a, a capital punishment type of crime, accusation against somebody, you've got to throw the first stone. Like, that's real accountability. Like, if this is going to be a crime that somebody has to die because of, you have to throw the first stone. Whereas Jesus, he's like, no, no, I'm going to go beyond that. If you throw the first stone, you've got to be completely without sin. And they're like, oh, hmm, that changes the dynamic altogether. Now, just to clarify, though, this does not mean Jesus is saying you cannot call out sin in somebody else. This passage right here gets used all the time by Christians, by skeptics, whatever. Like, oh, you can't judge me. You know, judge not lest you be judged. The problem is, in all those scenarios in Scripture, Jesus is saying that your heart needs to be right before you make a judgment on somebody else. So when Jesus says, I want you to remove the plank out of your eye before you call out the speck in somebody else's eye, he's not saying don't call the, the speck out in somebody else's eye. He's saying don't be a dirty hypocrite before you do it, right? Make sure you're good first, and then you can go and you can help a brother or sister out, and then you can call out what you see going on in their life. Don't be a hypocrite when you do that. Jesus is saying you need to do that. So don't ever use this passage or really let it be used to say, oh, Jesus is just all about grace. And he's like, oh, yeah, you can't call anything out unless you're perfect. Like, that's not the point. 
What he's doing to these guys is he's calling out their sin and saying, you're a bunch of hypocrites for coming and doing this. And that's what he's calling out. That's the issue here. Because, again, the next point, the issue wasn't her guilt. It was their sinful self-righteousness because they felt safe in their little bubble. So verse 9, when they heard this, this is the reaction. They leave one by one, starting with the older men. So here they are slinking away, embarrassed about being called out of their sin. And I think it's interesting that the older men go first. Again, a cultural note. Back then, older men had all the authority, right? They had the spiritual authority. They had cultural authority. So by them leaving first, it sucks all the momentum out of this crazy little angry mob, right? So that's an important first note. But also, I think it says that they probably had a little bit more wisdom than they did ego, right? They'd lived enough life to be like, hmm, this isn't going to go the way that we hope. We should probably get out of here, right? So they start slinking away from this. And it's at this point in the story where everything changes. The tone changes. The momentum shifts to this woman that Jesus is now going to talk with. So it says, only he was left with a woman in the center. Only he was left with a woman in the center. There's a lot in that. And here's what I want us to hear here. Look at this next thought. Even when we sin and the world turns on us, there's Jesus when we feel all alone. Your sin really should actually drive you to Jesus because you know that's where forgiveness is. You know that's where healing is. You know that's where freedom is. But oftentimes, though, our sin doesn't do that to us. It drives us away from Jesus. It drives us away from church because I can't go there with all my messed up stuff, right? Like, they'll never accept me there. I can't go there with my doubts, my thoughts, my fears, my sin. I can't do that. Whereas this story here shows us that Jesus stood all alone with this woman who was broken by her sin. That's the Jesus that we follow, just to be clear. He's serious about sin, but he's not going anywhere when we do it. I was raised, the first time I went to church, I was told, the more you sin, the further Jesus pushes you away like garbage. I was actually told that. That was my introduction to the grace of Jesus Christ. So I was like, yikes. I got no chance. That was my introduction. Unfortunately, that's not what we see in Scripture. He's always going to call us out. He's always going to convict us. Sometimes he's going to turn us over to the consequences of that sin, as you see happening here, as you can see in my own life, right? I've done that same thing. But this next thought, too. Jesus stood beside the most vulnerable in society. Over and over again, standing by women, standing by children, standing by the poor, standing by disabled, standing by sinners. But don't miss the point, though. He will call you out. He's not okay with your sin, but he offers you something better. Right? Not okay with your sin, but he offers us freedom. So verse 10, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, it's like I've dealt with their self-righteousness, now let's talk about you. Right? Let's move forward. And he says, woman, where are they? And again, that woman is not like, woman! It's a tender address. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No. No one, Lord, she said. And he says, neither do I. And that Greek word krino means a negative judgment. I don't condemn you either. And here's the important part. Jesus says, go and from now on, do not sin anymore. Just like with the blind man, Jesus is not all grace. He is very much concerned about our sin because he knows what it does to us. So I found this quote this week I wanted to share from the New American Commentary. It says, the liberating work of Jesus does not equal the excusing of sin. And he goes on. 
Meeting Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Why? Because turning away from sin leads you to freedom. That's what Jesus is about. He's not okay with your sin. He wants you to turn from that sin and embrace the freedom that he offers. And if we were to put it in a sentence made up by Scripture, look at this. Romans 8.1, those who belong to Jesus no longer face condemnation from Jesus because, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations. Therefore, Romans 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. Again, that's what the message of the New New Testament is. That's what the message of Jesus is about. But for some reason, we believed in this cultural Jesus who either doesn't care about our sin or leaves us all alone out in the middle of nowhere with it and with the consequences. We just don't have that. Jesus is always saying, turn from it because you don't need to be a slave to it. There's freedom that I offer you. So I wanted to uh, end briefly here with just this quick scene between him, because they have to come back to this. After he deals with this woman, he has to come back to the same group of Pharisees and have another conversation with them about the very same thing. Look at this. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, because he's not, this comment shows us he's not really sure if they actually believed in him. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, right? I need to see evidence in you. You will know the truth, and famously, right, the truth will set you free. Jesus' words set us free. And here's a challenge I have, I think, for us. If we're, I assume, a group of mostly religious people in here, is do you know the words of Jesus? For like 60 years, they've been doing surveys in America. How well do people know Scripture? Every year, every time they do it, people don't. And Christians sit back all self-righteous and sinful and say, look what's happening to the country. The problem is, we look just like the country. The problems Christians have are very similar to the ones non-Christians have. The things we deal with, the debt we carry, the fallout in our families. Why? Because we're doing the same types of sins that Jesus says, I died for and I gave you freedom from. Stop doing them. And we just keep doing them. And we're looking a whole heck of a lot like what we're not supposed to look like. And Jesus says, stop. I've given you freedom. Will you stop looking like the world? There's enough darkness in the world. There's enough death in the world. Would you be hope and light already? That's what we're called to. We're supposed to be representatives of freedom. So my challenge is know his words. Take 15 minutes a day and listen or read scripture. Listen to the words of Jesus. Actually get to know the one you say you follow. Because statistically speaking, most of us are not doing that. And that's just what Jesus is talking about this morning. He's not going to pull punches. He's not living in gray area when it comes to our stuff. So they get upset. At this rebuke of Jesus, in verse 33, they say, look, we're descendants of Abraham, the Pharisees say, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will be free? And Jesus responds, look, I tell you the truth. And whenever you see that, truly, I tell you, I tell you the truth. That actually in Greek is amen, amen. It's a double amen when it says, truly, I tell you. You need to pay attention in scripture when you see that, because Jesus says everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. It's not freedom. Skipping ahead to verse 51, he says it again. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Eternal life thing. So the Jews replied, and this is the end of their little interaction. If anyone keeps my word, they say, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, they died too. Who do you claim to be? Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad, which is a confusing statement. So the Jews reply, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? 
And Jesus famously says, Truly I tell you, Amin, Amin, before Abraham was, I am. That ego, Amin. Now, did the Jews understand what he was saying? Absolutely, because in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him, because he was claiming to be God. In context, in Scripture, if you're willing to be a student and kind of listen to what's going on, they understood, his enemies understood that he was constantly claiming to be God. And that's why they picked up stones in verse 59, because they were going to kill him for it. So, it's an odd phrase there, this, uh, this structure of the sentence. He says, before Abraham ever was, past tense, I am. So you guys live in linear time. Past, present, future, I am. That's what I am means. You have past, present, future, I am. I just am. Right? So that's what Jesus is saying. So here's some thoughts I wanted to close with today. Because based on this, these types of interactions, I want us to be really careful, like I said at the beginning, that we're not becoming spiritually lost religious people, and that, two, we are not minimizing our sin. So here's some thoughts that God put on my heart really heavy this week, and I've been thinking about all week long as I knew I was going to stand here and talk about this because I did not want to be a self-righteous hypocrite. I don't want to be trying to take you guys places and lead you places where I'm unwilling to go myself. So every Sunday I get up here, I have to deal with these things, and trust me, I do. Like, I really want to go before God because I want to humbly serve this local body in a way that's not hypocritical. Like, I don't want Jesus saying this kind of stuff to me. I want to know that I'm living in freedom. So here were some thoughts this week I walked away with. Are you minimizing your own sin and elevating the sins of others? Are you looking at your sins as not the big ones, but the other people? Man, those people, wow, they better have somebody praying for them, right? Next, are you snug in your relation, or your religion, I mean, in your traditions, and not really concerned with what God actually says? Because maybe you don't even know what God actually says. I go to church. I'm a Christian, right? Next, are you a hypocrite, Kyle, was what God was saying. Kyle, are you a hypocrite? Because you're supposed to be a source of hope in life. Are you a whitewashed tomb full of death? Uh, and I don't think that I am. Like, I, I don't. Like, I, I'm not saying that in a proud way, but I'm saying that in a pretty humble way of like, like, I want to do this right, Lord. I want to get up on this stage and represent you with a heart that's not full of nastiness and grossness, right? And I want you guys to do that same thing. I want you to be in that same space. But these are questions I was wrestling with this week. Next. Are you letting my sin, you know, am I doing that? Is it, am I letting it make me a slave? Is it burying me in shame because that's going to pull me from Jesus, right? Next, for you guys, for you ladies, do you know Jesus' words? Do you know him as he is, not as you want him to be, the easy version or maybe the hard version? Do you know Jesus actually as he is? And lastly, do you truly understand the freedom that Jesus offers you? Because if you do, here's some areas that will affect. It's a totally different way of living life. It's centered on his truth and teaching. Next, and it impacts your job or maybe your lack of, your relationships, maybe your lack of, your spending, or lack of, your anxiety, your anger, your fears, right? The world right now, I put this list on here specifically. I thought through this because this right here is what is destroying our country right now. These are the things, and there's others. I didn't want to go on for an hour about this, but these are the things that are really wrecking our hearts right now. And Jesus is like, I want you to have freedom in these areas. Trusting Jesus with these areas of your life are huge. But do you? Do I? Do I see Jesus impacting all these different places in my life? And I hope you can see Jesus as wanting you to have freedom in these areas. And I hope you don't think you need to come into this building all perfect. I hope you know you can come in here and grab somebody because your relationships are a wreck. Your spending is out of control. Your anxiety, your anger, your fears are out of control. I hope you know you can come here and have people pray for you. Because that's what church is. It's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. That's what we all get to do. So Tim, you want to come up and pray us out of here?
Because I hope that we honestly can meet Jesus as he is. I mean, that's where the series is going. Awesome. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you for your word. Uh, Sometimes, especially like today, uh, it cuts like a sword. It cuts right through our hearts. I pray that uh, you continue to do that work in us. This isn't a uh, one Sunday we heard that message. Um, This is your word, and this is the truth that we need to find. I pray that as we're wrestling with this reality that there are sins in our lives. I mean, I hope no one in this room is foolish enough to suggest uh, that they may have attained perfection. But God, I pray that as we do know our sins, that we can use each other. We can use this body of believers, that we can rely on each other and be honest with our sin instead of keeping it hidden and feeling that shame but just kind of ignoring it. We're going to let you deliver, and we're going to let you change us. Mm. You can change everything. You're doing that right now. You're going to use Quaybog to change our area, to change our sphere, anywhere where we're impacting. But I pray that first that begins with us. You change our hearts. Heal us of the sin that is hidden or that is public, and let us use each other, be resources to each other. That as we're wrestling, as we're trying to become more like you, let's put to death those earthly ways. So, Father, we're trusting you with our hearts as we go about, and I pray that you continue to advance your kingdom here in this area using Quaybog. But that begins with us. So change us first. Help us win that battlefield in our hearts. Praise your name. Amen. 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 Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.